0: Five weeks ago, we began this new and final section of Romans by looking at the first two verses of Romans chapter 12, in which Paul calls the church to a radically new, radically different, radically transformed way of life. He described this transformation as a metamorphosis, that's the Greek word behind the English translation, be transformed. In other words, what he's calling for is an inside-out transformation from a sinner who is conformed to the passions, pleasures, and practices of this world into a saint who is being conformed to the passions, pleasures, and practices of God. This transformed saint is so moved, motivated, by the manifold mercies of God, that he lives his life now as a living sacrifice, a holy, acceptable, pleasing offering to God. And we saw that the fulcrum of this transformation is the renewal of the mind, which happens by the Spirit through the Word. The Spirit of God through the Word of God, giving us the mind of God in order that we may know the will of God and so live a life of worship to God. That transformed life brought about by the transformed mind cannot help then but transform the church. And that's the theme of the remainder of Romans chapters 12 through 15. The question is, what does a transformed church look like? We saw first that a transformed church is a charismatic church. That was the theme of verses 3 through 8. That is, a transformed church is a church in which the Spirit works powerfully through the diverse gifts, the charismata that He gives. Diverse members possessing diverse gifts, fulfilling diverse functions within the one body. Every true believer is a charismatic and every true church is a charismatic church. In the rest of chapter 12, Paul then spells out what the transformed charismatic church does, how it actually lives through the power of the Spirit who inhabits and empowers the church. The question is, in what ways precisely Is the transformed church different from the world? Because the church must be different if it is to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth as Jesus calls us to be in Matthew 5. Or if the outsider is to come into our midst and declare, truly God is among you, as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 14. So in what ways is the transformed church different from the world? What are the fruits of the spiritual church? A church that is indwelt and transformed by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Before we begin, however, I think it needs to be stated that the commands that stare us in the face over the next few weeks are impossible for the natural man to. To obey. It is not in our power to do what these verses command us to do. Indeed, it's not even in our nature. Take the very first command that we find in verse 9 let love be genuine. Literally, let love be without hypocrisy. Paul is calling us to a real, authentic, sincere, unfeigned, unforced love, and not merely for those who are lovely, for those for whom we already have a natural affection like for our spouse or our children or our family or our friends. The people of the world love those who are lovely. The people of the world love those for whom they already possess a natural affection. What is called for here in Romans 12 is more than that. It's an authentic love for people, for other people, for different people, for people whom we otherwise would not love were it not for the transformation that is being wrought in us by the power of the Spirit. Mankind is by nature xenophobic, meaning that we fear different people. Christians, however, are called to xenophilia, meaning love for different people. And not coincidentally, that word xenophilia is the Greek word for hospitality. And that's a, a characteristic, an action that Paul is going to call the church to out of this genuine love further on in verse 13. So this love of which Paul speaks is not within our natural ability to produce. It is unnatural. Indeed, it's supernatural. The love of which Paul speaks is a Christian grace. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit that grows in the soil of a regenerate, transformed heart. Now, let me tell you where I get that idea. On the night when he was betrayed, Jesus gathered his disciples together in the upper room in order to eat of that final Passover before He was to be crucified for sinners the following day. Following that Last Supper, Jesus spoke to His disciples at length regarding what was to come. And standing at the head of this prolonged discourse, which is recorded in John 13-17, are these massively important words from Jesus. John 13-34, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And I want you to look very closely at Jesus' words. There are three statements in these verses which lead me to the conclusion that the love of which Jesus speaks, the love to which Paul calls us in Romans 12.9 is deeper, higher, broader, it's different than any natural, that is unregenerate, not born again man can possibly produce in his own power and his own strength. First, notice that Jesus calls this a new commandment. But in what way is the command to love new? It's certainly not that there was no command to love in the Old Testament. Think of Deuteronomy 6.5 or Leviticus 19.8. Deuteronomy 6.5 calling us to love the Lord our God and Leviticus 19.18 calling us to love our neighbor. Therefore, the newness of this command is not in the commandment itself, rather it is in the intensity and the intimacy of this love. The love of which Jesus spoke on that that night in the upper room is not love merely for one's neighbor, it is love for one's brother. This is love that can be found only within the church. The nation of Israel could not love one another like this because within the nation there were both believers and unbelievers, the righteous and the wicked, living side by side. But not so in the church, where every member, at least in theory, is a regenerate, spirit-indwelt child of God. Therefore, according to Jesus, the new covenant community, the church, is to be marked by the New Covenant command, namely, love. Second, Jesus says that the love which He commands is modeled after His own love for His people. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. The love Jesus commands of us is to be a reflection of His own love toward us. And that's a tall order, is it not? How can fallen man possibly produce a love that is anywhere reflective of the divine Christ-like love which Jesus has for His own. It's impossible unless the very Spirit of God produces it within us. Finally, Jesus makes this love the distinguishing mark of true Christianity. He says, by this All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now note this very carefully. The only way love can be a distinguishing mark of those who truly belong to Christ is if the love of which Jesus speaks is present in every believer, yet absent in every unbeliever. If it is a love which is found only in the church, And not in the world. So you need to ask yourself, what is the primary difference between the believer and the unbeliever? Between the church and the world? It's the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle John heard what Jesus said that night and he took it to heart. Because he wrote decades later that we know that we have passed out of death and into life if we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. John's saying, if you love the brothers, if you love like Jesus commands, you're born again. You're alive in Christ. If you don't, you're still dead in your sins and apart from Christ. So we return to the text of Romans with the knowledge that this command, let love be genuine, is impossible for natural man to obey in the strength of his own flesh. We simply do not have it within us to love as Jesus loves, to love as Jesus commands. It's not in our fallen, depraved natures. We are far too self-centered and self-seeking to love like Jesus loves. To prove the point further, just listen to the way Paul describes and defines Christian love, the love which Jesus commands, the love which ought to characterize the New Covenant church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians thirteen four, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That is simply an extended definition of what Paul means in Romans 12:9. That is genuine love. But how could we possibly love like this, when we are not by nature patient nor kind? When we are by nature envious and boastful, arrogant and rude, stubborn and irritable and resentful when we do not get our way. When by nature we rejoice at wrongdoing and not in the truth. We're unwilling to bear burdens, we're unbelieving, hopeless and weak. Listen to me very carefully. Paul's command to let love be genuine is impossible with man. There is no hope and no power within you to love like this. And that is why you must rely upon a hope and a power that is outside of you. Just as Jesus told His disciples when they asked Him in astonishment how one could possibly love God more than they loved money. To which Jesus answered, With man it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. In commanding believers to, one, to love one another with an authentic, non-hypocritical, Christ-like love, Paul knows that he is requiring the impossible. And indeed, he has already addressed how believers may accomplish the impossible, namely, to fulfill the righteousness of the law. It's all wrapped up in this very Pauline phrase, walk by the Spirit, which we find in Romans chapter 8. For instance Romans 8:3 For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit And what is the righteous requirement of the law Paul says, Galatians 5.14, that the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So there it is. There is the secret to doing the impossible. Namely, to love one another as Jesus loves and thereby to fulfill the law. The secret is to walk by the Spirit you must access the power of the Holy Spirit to do what is otherwise impossible. But how do you do that? How does one walk by the Spirit? What does that even mean? Well, I've taught on this subject a number of times over the years. But as there are many new faces in our congregation, and as the rest of us are prone to forget and to fall back into a a grueling, try-harder-to-be-better version of Christianity, I think it would be wise to revisit this issue of how to walk by the Spirit in order that we may fulfill the law of love. In other words, the commands of Romans 12-15. through For years, that phrase, walk by the Spirit, was a complete mystery to me. I had no idea what it meant. I had no idea how to do it. That is, until about 6 years ago, when I was preaching through Galatians 5, where the same concept occurs. For instance, in Galatians 5.16 and 5.25. And during that time, I was listening to sermons by John Piper from Galatians 5, trying to understand what it all meant. What does it mean to live by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit? when Piper said something that has been transforming my life ever since. In one particular sermon, he gave an acronym that provides a practical paradigm for consciously living and walking by the Spirit's power in order to do what the law commands, namely, to love. The acronym is APTAT, A-P-T-A-T. It's an acronym that doesn't actually spell anything, it would be Great if it did, but I've tried for years now to come up with a better one that does spell something, and I've struck out every time. So we'll stick with Aptat. Anyway, it goes like this. A, the first day, stands for acknowledge. You must acknowledge that apart from Christ, you can do nothing. John 15, 5. You must acknowledge that the power to do good, namely to love, does not reside within you. Romans 7.18 You cannot muster the authentic love required to love the unlovely. You do not possess the self-control required to resist temptation. You don't have the wisdom necessary to make that important and looming decision. So put to death pride and self-sufficiency by acknowledging to God your helplessness. You are utterly dependent upon the Spirit's grace and power in order to bear real lasting spiritual fruit. So transformation begins by acknowledging that the power of transformation does not reside within you. It must come from without. Namely, from God. So acknowledge your helplessness, your powerlessness, your need for the Spirit. And then pray. Pray that God would bear the fruit of the Spirit within you. If it's love you need, pray that the Lord would cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for everyone, 1 Thessalonians 3.12. If it's joy that you lack, pray that God, the God of hope, would fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Romans 15, 13. Pray that God would equip you with every good thing, that you may do His will, working in you that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13.21 In other words, ask God to do for you and in you what you cannot do for and in yourself. Ask Him to overpower the sinful desire of the flesh with a stronger and superior desire of the Spirit for righteousness then trust, find a promise of God, and believe it. Because the Holy Spirit works through faith. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. When he asks the Galatians, Let me ask you this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul is clear. The Spirit works in his people through faith. But faith must have an object. It must have something in which it can anchor itself. And that something is the promise of the Word of God. So find a promise of God specific to your need and take your stand upon it. Maybe it's love you need. Well, God promises, Romans chapter 5 and verse 5, that His love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Or maybe it's wisdom you need. James 1, 5 promises that if you lack wisdom and ask of God, He will give it to you generously. Maybe it's discipline that you need. Second Timothy one seven says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and self discipline, self control. See, God has promised to sanctify you. And He has by His divine power granted to you everything pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. So believe His promise, trust His word. He will not fail to bring His promise to pass. He will not fail to grant you the grace, the strength, the power you need to obey His will. Then you must act. Act in obedience to God's Word. Don't sit back and wait for a feeling or a mystical experience to come upon you. Don't wait to feel love or joy or wisdom or conviction before you will act in obedience. Act the miracle, as Piper says, trusting that God has heard and answered your prayer and that He will surely provide you with the strength you need. And it is in this way, when you have come to God in utter helplessness and dependence, you've prayed for and you're trusting in His strength, that your obedience then will not be a work of the flesh. Rather, it will be a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Which brings us then to the last point. Thank. Thank God for granting you the grace, the will, and the power to do by His Spirit what you could not do by the flesh. When your obedience to God's command is the joyful fruit of the Spirit rather than the grueling, begrudging work of the flesh, then all glory and praise belongs to God because it was His strength at work in you, willing and working according to His good pleasure. The power is not yours, it's His, and therefore so is the glory. So render it to Him. That is how you may consciously walk by the Spirit in order to do what is otherwise impossible for natural man to accomplish. Beloved, the Christian life is not a life that can be lived in the power of the flesh. You don't have it in you to fulfill the commands that God lays upon His church. The commands found, for instance, in Romans chapter 12. But God has promised to supply His Spirit to you in order that you may walk by the Spirit and so fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. The Christian life is not a natural life. It's a supernatural life. Which is why you've got to be born again in order to live it. There is no other way to live the transformed life than by the power of the Spirit. And you will not have that power unless you consciously access it through faith. People do not accidentally walk by the Spirit. They don't unconsciously walk by the Spirit because you can only walk by the Spirit through faith. So as we stare down these commands and exhortations, which Paul is going to fire at us in rapid fire succession throughout the remainder of Romans 12, remember, he's not calling us to a grueling, teeth-gritting kind of self-effort. He's not calling us to a try-harder-to-be-better-and-do-more kind of Christianity. He's calling us to walk by the Spirit through faith. Imagine trying to do what Paul's going to call us to do in the strength of our own flesh. The very first command blows that idea right out of the water. Imagine trying to grind out genuine love, to try to muster up a feeling of love for somebody that you simply don't feel. Insincere, inauthentic, hypocritical love is a contradiction in terms. It's no love at all. You must have a power from outside of yourself, namely the sovereign and omnipotent power of the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill the righteousness of the law. So everything that's coming our way in the next several weeks, everything in Romans 12, 13, 14, and 15 should be understood underneath this banner of walk by the Spirit in order that you may fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Walk by the Spirit in order that you may obey the commands of Romans 12. And this is exactly why we began by pointing out that the transformed church must first be a charismatic church. Namely, a spirit-indwelt, spiritually gifted body of regenerate, born-again believers. Beloved, these are Christian graces. And they cannot be produced in the power of the flesh, but only in the power of the Spirit through faith. With that foundation, which is not just the foundation for this week, but for the next several weeks to come, Let's look briefly at today's text. Beginning in verse 9, Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Let me say a word about the structure of this passage. Literally translated, the first phrase is simply, Sincere love. That's it. There's no verb in the original Greek, so one must be supplied. Something like, let love be genuine, or love without hypocrisy. That phrase is then followed by a series of participles that seem to explain and describe and fill out, then, what genuine love is. In other words, today's passage, verses 9 and 10, could be translated like this. Let love be genuine. And you ask yourself, how? By abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. By loving one another with brotherly affection. By outdoing one another in showing honor. So love is the first fruit of a Spirit-filled church. That's the title of today's message. It's the title of the next several messages that are to come throughout the rest of Romans 12. The fruit of the spiritual church. And the first fruit, just like in Galatians 5.22, is love. And there's a sense in which everything that's to come in the remainder of Romans 12-15 to is really an exhortation to genuine, unhypocritical, Christ-like, new commandment love. This is the kind of love that must mark the fellowship of the saints of 1st Baptist Nixa. This is how all of Nixa, and indeed the world, we'll know that we are disciples of Jesus Christ if we love one another with this kind of genuine, authentic, sincere, unhypocritical love. So the question is, what does genuine, spirit-wrought Christian love consist of? Three things. First, we find that it is a righteous love. It's a love that abhors what is evil and holds fast to what is good. Or as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 13, It's a love that does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, these are incredibly strong words that Paul uses in Romans 12.9. The word abhor means to shudder in horror and hatred. It means to hate exceedingly, to loathe what is evil. And hold fast, King James Version translates it, cleave. It's a word that's used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to that intimate union of marriage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave or hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Paul's saying we need to hate exceedingly, we need to despise, we need to loathe what is evil, and we need to cleave to, become one flesh with what is good. Both of those words denote a passionate, visceral intensity of feeling. On the one hand, an utter horror at that which is evil, and on the other hand, a passionate clinging for that which is good and holy and righteous and true. Once again, you can see the impossibility of obeying this command in our natural power. By nature, we are drawn to evil by a strong and innate attraction. It's like we've got metal running through our veins and evil is this enormous magnet. We're drawn to it. We love it. Yet the intensity of these words in verse 9 assures us that moralistic lip service or teeth-gritting self-effort will not suffice to obey this command. To obey Paul's command, you must abhor evil, not simply avoid it. You must hold fast to what is good and not simply tip your hat to it. Paul is commanding, in other words, a change of affections, not merely a change of actions. But that's not the way most of us approach holiness, is it? We tend to approach holiness from the outside in, and that's not transformation. That's not a metamorphosis. And this is why so many people try to follow Christ, they try to live the Christian life for a time and then they just give up. Why? Because they find it to be an utterly miserable experience. I mean, who wants to live your life depriving yourself of the sin that you really love and forcing yourself to do the righteousness that you really hate? We were made for joy. We were created to pursue happiness with all of our being. And if you don't find following Christ, which means abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good, if you don't find that to be a joyful experience, of course you're going to give up. And you'll pursue the true desire of your heart once more. That's why transformation must occur at the level of our affections, not merely at the level of our actions. There's a vital difference between resisting the sin that we really desire, depriving ourselves of the sinful pleasure that we really crave, because that's what God wills and commands of us. There's a difference between that and learning to hate the sin, to see it for what it really is, and to long for holiness and righteousness and truth, because that's what we really will for ourselves. The first is mere outward conformity. The second is authentic transformation. The first is counterfeit Christianity. The second is authentic Christianity. And what makes the difference? between authentic and counterfeit Christianity. It's the presence and power of the Holy Spirit transforming our affections such that we now hate the sin that we used to love and love the righteousness that we used to hate. But how does this abhorrence of evil and this cleaving to good relate to love? Because the focus of this passage is not primarily self-oriented. It's primarily others-oriented. It's under the banner of love, right? Remember that what follows that opening phrase of verse 9 modifies and explains that opening phrase. Let love be genuine. How? By abhorring what is evil and holding fast to what is good. So the question is, what does it mean to love my brother or sister in such a way that I abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. I think John Stott helps us out here when he explains, love is not the blind sentiment it is traditionally said to be. On the contrary, it is discerning. It is so passionately devoted to the beloved object that it hates every evil which is incompatible with his or her highest welfare. In other words, love doesn't let the object of its affection just do whatever it is that they want to do and be whatever it is that they want to be. It doesn't affirm them in their self-destructive, sinful behaviors. According to Paul, genuine, sincere, unhypocritical love requires that I be passionately devoted to the highest good of the object of my love, namely, my brothers and sisters in Christ. And that means abhorring the evil that would destroy my brother and holding fast to the good that would lead my brother to eternal life. It means genuine love will at times require confrontation, confronting sin, speaking the truth in love. It will mean coming alongside my brother in his fight against sin, fighting with him, alongside him, against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Love, real love, does not coddle, it confronts, it does not excuse. It exhorts. It does not simply wish my brother well in his fight against sin. Hey, I'll be praying for you. It enters into the battle alongside him. I'm going to help you fight this sin. I'm going to help you put it to death. And it does so not out of some sense of moral superiority, but out of genuine, passionate, heartfelt longing for my brother's highest good which is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, that our church would be marked by a holy, righteous love for one another. A love that in the words of Jude, saves those who are ensnared by sin, snatching them out of the fire, showing mercy with fear, and hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude 23. A love without hypocrisy, a genuine, Christ-like, new commandment, new covenant love, is a righteous love. Second, it is an affectionate love. Let love be genuine, loving one another with brotherly affection. There are two key words in this phrase, and each tells us something about the kind of affection that we're to have for one another. First, it is a familiar affection. This is brought out by the word that is translated brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. It's a Greek word that you actually know. It's the word Philadelphia. It's the affection that exists between the members of a family. You cannot feel Philadelphia, brotherly affection for someone about whom all you really know is their name. And this kind of familiarity, this kind of intimate knowledge only happens with time and intentionality. Beloved, we've got to do better about this as a church. We've got to get more intentional about investing in one another's lives outside of, hey, how are you doing on Sunday morning. We need to develop deep relationships, and not just with those who are already in our natural affinity groups. Those of the same age, same life stage, same hobbies, same personalities. If those are the only people in the church that you know and love, how is that any different from the love that the world possesses? There is only one tried and true way that I know of accomplishing this a method that transcends both time and culture, we've got to get into one another's homes. We've got to share meals together, get to know one another, tell each other our stories. Eat together, laugh together, play games together, build brotherly affection for one another, transcend the differences through spirit-wrought love. Listen, the table was given by God to foster authentic fellowship. And we'll talk more about this next week when we deal with verse 13 and its command to show hospitality. But for now, suffice it to say that you cannot love those whom you do not know. And I know that during the present quarantine, it's almost impossible to have one another in your home. But that just means we're going to have to get creative for the time being. Pick up your phone. Call a member of this church that you've never really talked to before. Introduce yourself, ask them how they're getting along, and then pray for them. It's that simple. Second, not only is it a familiar affection, Paul's language reminds us that it's a felt affection. This is brought out by the word translated love. Love one another with brotherly affection. It's a word probably better translated devotion or affection. It's a feeling of tenderness that exists between a parent and a child or a husband and a wife. I've heard it said before in churches, and I've probably said this myself. I love so-and-so as a brother in Christ, but I don't particularly like them. Well, that's absurd. And furthermore, it's ungodly. If you don't like someone, you don't love them either. Listen, I understand that loving one another with brotherly affection is going to be a struggle. Indeed, it's going to be impossible apart from the power of the Spirit. And I know that you're not going to be best friends with everyone in this church. And that's okay. What's not okay is for you to be content with the fact that there are some people in this church who irritate you. That there are some people in this church with whom you just can't seem to get along. That's not okay. That's not loving one another with brotherly affection. That's just loving like the world loves. Those people... That you don't naturally love, you're not naturally drawn to, you don't naturally feel an affection for. Those are the very people that you've got to press into prayerfully in the power of the Spirit until you do feel brotherly affection for them. I know it's uncomfortable. I know that your flesh doesn't want to. But what is impossible for man is possible with God. That's why you've got to apt at it. Walk by the Spirit and overcome the obstacles in order to reach a place of brotherly affection for everyone in this body of Christ. That's the kind of love that is going to distinguish this church from the world. Finally, note that genuine love is a humble love. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, it's unclear how exactly this final phrase is to be understood. Should it be understood uh, as in the ESV, for instance, in a competitive sense? Outdo one another. uh, Surpass one another in showing honor. Or should it be understood as in the New American Standard as a statement of preference? Prefer one another above or before yourself. Kind of like that idea in Philippians 2.3 where Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count one another as more important than yourself. Both are biblical concepts, and it's impossible to know for sure because the verb that Paul uses here is used only here in the entire New Testament, so we don't have any other passage to compare it to. I happen to think that the ESV has it right. I think it's to be understood in a kind of competitive sense, but in either case, Paul's point is clear. Humility is the command. It's a lovely picture, though, isn't it? A people who are so humble that they're trying to outdo one another in honoring one another. How opposite is that from the way of the world which tries to outdo one another in exalting oneself? Can you picture what that would look like at First Baptist Nixa? Instead of talking poorly about one another behind their back, gossiping, pointing out one another's faults in some perverse effort to make ourselves look better in the eyes of others, as if honor were a zero-sum game in which there must be a winner and a loser, Imagine if our heart's desire was to honor one another, to lift them up in the eyes of others, to talk about their gifts, to exult in the grace of God which has been shown in their lives, their qualities that we admire, rather than perpetually talking about ourselves. Before we speak about someone else, we should ask the question, will this lead to their being honored in the eyes of others or to their being dishonored? And if it doesn't edify, it shouldn't be said. When it comes to living the transformed life, we could take a cue from those great theologians from Liverpool who once said, all you need is love. Love is all you need. Or as Paul, uh, the apostle, not the beetle, said, For love, or for the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Listen, every other matter of righteousness and sanctification and holiness and godliness flows out of this single fountain. Love is, according to John Stott, the essence of Christian discipleship. It's the essence of what it means to be a Christian. All you need is love. And yet, love, genuine love, love without hypocrisy, is the one thing you cannot produce, which is why you need the grace and power of the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Aptat and your love for one another will be genuine. It will be righteous, it will be affectionate, it will be humble. It will be authentic, genuine, without hypocrisy. Christ will be exalted, others will be blessed, and you will be filled with joy. And the world will take note. For by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you love one another.